Well, my name is Pastor Chase. I'm one of the pastors here at Ignite Church. Really glad to be here with you this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12, verse 43. Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. We're looking at a short passage of Scripture today, but it is dense. And if you're maybe joining us for the first time this fall or uh, just want to clue you in on where we're at as a church, we're focusing on the Gospel of Matthew, taking a few years to study that Gospel together as a church. And this fall, we're focusing on chapters 10 through 12. And the major theme of Matthew, chapters 10 through 12, is looking at the different responses that people of Jesus' day had to Jesus' ministry. And if you've been with us this fall at all, looking at chapters 10 through 12, you've noticed one particular group of people giving Jesus some trouble. These are the religious leaders. These are the Pharisees, the scribes, and will eventually be introduced later to the Sadducees, but they're the religious leaders. And you need to know that these were the pastors, if you will, of first century Judaism, uh, they were appointed as shepherds, the book of Jeremiah tells us, shepherds of God's people. They were meant to uh, model godliness for God's people. But as we've seen just in these couple of chapters, the Pharisees did not model godliness for God's people. The scribes and Pharisees were far from godly. In fact, they were prideful, they were corrupt, and Jesus says their hearts were evil. But here's the catch, and I need you to catch this because this is important context for our short passage today. The catch is this. The Pharisees were the most outwardly moral people you could imagine. They were outwardly moral people. We would call them good people in our society today. We're told throughout Scripture a few things that the Pharisees did as morally good people, uh, Literally, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, as part of their daily wardrobe, would tie up Scripture in leather boxes and wear them on their left arm. Like, that's a moral person. You're wearing Scripture after putting on your shoes and socks. Like, th these were the Pharisees. We know that the Pharisees prayed three times a day with their face set toward the direction of the temple in Jerusalem. We're told in Matthew chapter 23, we'll get there eventually as a church, uh, but Matthew 23, we're told that the Pharisees gave a tenth of all of their cooking spices routinely to the poor. They tithed their spice rack. These were good people. Our culture would say these were good people. A lot of the Jews of Jesus' day would say the Pharisees were good people. But I want you to consider this with me. Morality can be very dangerous to the soul. Consider this. In the ministry of Jesus, it wasn't the prostitutes, the criminals, and the tax collectors that had a hard time with Jesus' message of repentance. Who was it? It was the religious people. It was the moral people. It was the Pharisees. The scribes, the Sadducees, the good people of Jesus' day that ultimately rejected Jesus and ultimately had him tried and crucified. It was the moral people. Why? Because they didn't need to repent. They were their own savior. This is the danger of morality. 
This is the danger of being what we call good people. I need to drive this point home as a foundation for our teaching today. I want you to consider with me for a moment, who's the most morally good person you know? Who's the most morally good person you know? Now ask yourself this, does that person know Jesus? If not, these are the people that Jesus has in mind in Matthew 12, 42 through 45. These are the people, the people that live moral lives without Christ living in them. It's those people that Jesus addresses in our text today. And I would argue that being moral without Christ living in your heart and transforming you from the inside out, I would argue that's one of the most dangerous places a person can be. And that's what we're unpacking today. In our text today, Jesus gives a warning to the moral people. He gives a warning to the good people. Matthew 12, 43 through 45 is a parable of warning. A parable is a uh, teaching tactic Jesus used often in his ministry. And it's a teaching tactic uh, where he would use an illustrative story to drive home a divine truth. And Jesus uses this parable to denounce the morality of the religious leaders and warn the crowds against following in their footsteps. And so I invite you to hear Jesus' word of warning with this in mind today. Let's read Matthew 12, 43 through 45. If you have a Bible, read with me. Otherwise, i got a big Bible on the screen behind me as well. Chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, Jesus says this. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation." If you're taking notes or want a central theme that we're going to be unpacking for the rest of our time together, it is this. Living morally without Christ living in you brings death. Living morally without Christ living in you brings death. And Jesus' parable teaches us two truths on the dangers of morality. Jesus' parable teaches that Morality ultimately leads to emptiness and to certain death. These are Jesus' words of warning in the parable we look at today. Let's look at the first two verses. What I want to do is walk through this short parable, uh, and then I want to spend some time at the, the end of our time together answering the how question. Uh, how does morality lead to death? How is morality without Christ dangerous? And that's what I want to do in our time together. That's where Jesus' focus is in Matthew 12. That being said, we look first at the first two verses, and we see the emptiness of morality. The emptiness of morality. Now, we just read this parable, and this parable, admittedly, uh, is very strange to modern ears. Okay, just in the first two verses alone, Jesus mentions demons, deserts, and then demon possession. Okay, people often ask, what do pastors do with their time during the week? Like, I try and make sense of this for you. <laughs> okay, that, that, that's just another Sunday, just another day in the life of Jesus' ministry. 
uh, but this is odd to our ears, and so I want to unpack this a little bit. We need some, we need some context to understand uh, the depth of the message that Jesus is trying to communicate to his hearers. So in verse 43, Jesus sets up the parable by saying, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person. The term unclean spirit is another word for demon. And it's used some 20 times in the four gospels in our New Testament. And this idea of unclean spirit introduces us to a massive biblical theme. And this biblical theme is the theme of oppression and deliverance. Okay, you need to understand that the biblical worldview is a supernatural worldview. You need to understand that uh, beneath everything that we can see in the natural realm are uh, warring powers of darkness, Satan, demons, and hell, warring against the people of God. That's what's going on behind the scenes in the unseen supernatural realm. In fact, some of you, you may just feel like, man, 2020 has felt like I've been in a war. Life is going okay, but I just feel like I'm at war. And I would say this, you are. You're warring against the powers of darkness in the unseen realm. This was central to Jesus' worldview. This is central to the biblical worldview. And the Bible's not just an ancient book, it's a timeless book that makes sense of the world in which we live. I would say this is true for us today as well. We're at war. And so Jesus, picking up on this, calls demons unclean spirits. And in the parable, he says, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through what? Waterless places. Passes through deserts. This would have been pretty easy to understand for those listening to Jesus' teaching. Okay, Jesus' ministry took place in a 100-mile strip of land uh, called Palestine. It's the modern-day Arabian Peninsula. It's a desert. It's a desert. And the regions surrounding it were desolate. You might read throughout the Old Testament uh, this reference to the wilderness, God's people wandering through the wilderness. That wasn't a dense forested place. This was a desert. It was wild and waste. And so Jesus says these demons apparently seeking rest, they passed through waterless places. Demons were thought to inhabit the desert. Because in the worldview of Jesus' day, the desert was a place void of God's blessing. You go to the desert to die. And so demons were thought to inhabit this place. In fact, in the prophet Jeremiah chapter 22, God pronounces a judgment on Jerusalem. That was uh, Israel's capital. And it's interesting that God... By pronouncing judgment on Jerusalem, he says in Jeremiah 22 that to judge them, he will turn Jerusalem into a desert. That was a death sentence for people in this day in this region. And so the unclean spirits passed through waterless places. And look with me at verse 44. The demon then says to himself, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, I finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. So here's what Jesus has in mind in this parable. He has in mind a demon that leaves a person, but then the unclean spirit returns to that person. And it's interesting that 
In this parable, the unclean spirit uses a statement of ownership. Look what he calls the person in verse 44. I'll return to what? My house. I'll return to my house. Let me say this. This is true for all of those outside of Christ. For those outside of the saving, redemptive power of Jesus Christ, adopted into God's family, for those outside of that family, Jesus in the scriptures would say, you belong to your father, the devil. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 8. He's addressing the Pharisees. And the Pharisees looking for a way to destroy Jesus. Jesus responds to the Pharisees and says, you don't know the works I do. You don't know my father. Why? Because you are of a different father. You're of your father, the devil. It's a father-son relationship. And so this idea that this demon, these unclean spirits, refer to the person and statement of ownership, terms of ownership, is significant. But at this point, you might ask, what does this have to do with morality? And here's our key phrase. In the second part of verse 44, it's the central point of this parable. It's vital to understanding the truth of this teaching. If you have your Bibles, I want you to underline this phrase. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. So as the parable goes, here's what Jesus has established in this illustrative story so far. Verse 43, the unclean spirit, the demon, leaves a person. We're not told how. We're just told that it happened. It's very possible that Jesus was the one in this story that cast out the unclean spirit. We know that Jesus did this. He healed people that were oppressed by demons. This was part of Jesus' ministry. It could also be that this uh, hypothetical man in view cleaned up his act and got rid of some really bad vices in his life. Maybe he cleaned up his act and so there was no home anymore for the unclean spirit to be in him. We're not told how. We're not told how it happened. We're just told that it did happen. Okay, and then verse 44, some time passes and the unclean spirit, what? Returns to the person from whom it was removed. Why? I need you to catch this. Because the person did not fill the spiritual void with anything of spiritual significance. The unclean spirit left the person. Then after seeking rest in the waterless places, the unclean spirit returns to this person. Why? Because he left his heart empty. Do you understand that the spiritual heart is a spiritual vacuum? Man, any empty space will be filled. It's one thing to remove the vices from your heart. It's one thing to try and change your own heart nature. But it's another thing to leave it empty. The heart's a spiritual vacuum. It will be filled with something. 
And the question in view is, will it be filled with the presence, the person, and power of Jesus Christ? Or will it be left empty? And this is the warning to those that clean themselves up, but leave their hearts empty. That the presence of evil, Satan, demon, death, and the power of hell will fill your heart. It's not a matter of if they will, it's a matter of when. And so this person cleans up his act, but doesn't fill the spiritual void with anything of substance. I'm reminded of the words of a pastor theologian in the fourth century, Augustine of Hippo. He was an African bishop, pastor, and he himself in his first 20, 30 years of life wrestled with some really serious vices, addiction and pride. And after decades of searching, decades of having an empty heart, he said this in a prayer to the Lord at his conversion. He said, Father, you have made us for yourself. The human heart is restless until it finds rest in you. See, when we're left with an empty heart, we seek satisfaction from these things that promise satisfaction, the fleeting promise of satisfaction from sin, only to leave us even more empty on the inside. The heart is restless until it finds rest in Christ. So this phrase, this cleaning up the act, this idea of empty, swept, and put in order. You know what we would call this today? We would call this self-help. We would call this cleaning yourself up. Any of you guys go to the the bookstores in town? Big self-help section. It sells in our culture, self-help. Man, even in the Christian section, Christian self-help. I have a hard time with that. The Bible I read says we don't need self-help, we need a savior. Empty, swept, and put in order. This man got his life cleaned up from some vices and addictive habits perhaps that held him captive to the slavery of sin. You know, the Pharisees did this. Outwardly, they were moral. Inwardly, they were corrupt. These are the people that you would look at and say, that's a good person. But inwardly, their hearts were corrupt. Their hearts were empty. It's as if Jesus is speaking in this parable directly to the religious leaders, saying, you know who you are. In Matthew 23, what goes on, you've probably heard us reference this a lot in the last few weeks. In Matthew 23, you can maybe uh, bookmark that to read this week, but what Jesus does is he issues just a relentless assault of woes or statements of judgments to the religious leaders for what they're doing to the people of God. And in Matthew 23, Jesus hits the nail on the head and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You clean the outside of the cup, but inwardly you are filthy. 
He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. You're like whitewashed tombs. On the outside, you're a beautiful white, but on the inside, you're full of death and decay. The Pharisees were the epitome of having a heart, a spiritual condition that was empty, swept, and put in order. And I would argue that we do this too, don't we? Don't we clean ourselves up? And don't we work so hard to get rid of some destructive habits? Don't we work so hard to shake those behaviors that can damage families to the third generation? Like, don't we work to do that? This is morality, and ultimately what happens, it leaves us empty. So on the inside, we have a heart that's empty, swept, and put in order. On the outside, we look moral. But in the last verse of our parable, verse 45, Jesus addresses the certain end of morality. You ask, what happens to the person, the person who lives morally, who empties his heart, but leaves himself spiritually empty? This is the question Jesus answers in the last verse of the parable. Read with me verse 45 again. After the unclean spirit finds a heart empty, swept, and put in order, then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, seven other demons, more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. It goes and brings with it seven other spirits. The number seven in Scripture is the number of completion or fulfillment. You ask, why? Uh, because the first page of your Bible, Genesis 1, God created the earth and, uh, and the heavens in six days and rested on the seventh, symbolizing this pattern of completion on the seventh day. And so this isn't some arbitrary number Jesus uses. Note, Jesus says the unclean spirit comes and finds, uh, brings seven of its friends, and now the person has eight unclean spirits living in him. Jesus goes on to say, the last state of that person is worse than the first. Why? Well, just as two people are better than one, so eight demons are worse than one. But spiritually speaking, this idea of seven other unclean spirits filling this man's heart communicates the truth that the moral man becomes even more wretched than before. The moral man, his heart becomes even more darkened than before. And here's what I've been trying to drive home. The danger of morality is encapsulated in this scripture because the moral man filled with a complete number of unclean spirits, his heart darkened, his eyes shut. He thinks he's moral. He says in his heart, I'm good, so God must be good with me. This is dangerous thinking. I hate this lie of morality so much because it rings so true to my experience. When I read scripture, I resonate with the Pharisees so much. 
their pride and their corrupt hearts and their outwardly good motives. But Jesus says the last state of that person is worse than the first. These spirits were able to do this to this man. Why? Because he left himself empty. And then Jesus concludes with this. Look at this as a statement of judgment on the Jews and religious leaders of his day. What does he say? So will it also be with this evil generation. This is a statement of judgment from the eternal God-man, Jesus Christ. The Jewish people have rejected their Messiah. And what was the cause of it? It was their morality. The morality blinded them from their real need for Christ to work in them. Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does the moral person say to that? I have no need for repentance. And so just as the unclean spirit, as he goes out of a person, comes back to that person who has cleaned his act up, goes and brings seven other spirits with it, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it is with that evil generation. And so it's true for us today. Jesus' parable teaches the timeless truth that the religion of morality leaves a person empty and it leads to death. Morality is incredibly dangerous for our soul. I want to spend the last few moments of our time answering the how question. Right, we made the claim living morally without Christ living in you brings death. This is true and I want to show you how this is true. The reality is that morality will end in one or all of three ways. The certain end of morality is first, exhaustion. Exhaustion. You saw it on the screen during worship, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. We looked at it earlier this fall. You might be familiar with this scripture where Jesus, crying out in a loud voice, says, come to me, all you who labor and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for your soul. Jesus uttered that statement with the Pharisees around him because he looked at the religion of the morally good Pharisees and saw what it was doing to the people they led. Jesus came and ministered to a generation of people that were exhausted, worked to the point of exhaustion under the Jewish religious leaders. The message of first century Judaism was just try a little harder, clean yourself up a little more. We would hear it today 
and we often hear it today, is, man, if you would just read your Bible a little bit more, if you would just give a little bit more to the church, if you would just ask forgiveness a little bit more, then God will be pleased with you. That was the lie of the first century Jewish religious leaders, and that's the lie so many believe today. It's this idea of morality making us right with God, and it only leads to exhaustion. It ends in exhaustion. The second end for living morally without Christ living in us, it ends in pride. Many of you can resonate with this, I'm sure. Living morally leads to pride. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, Jesus tells another parable, and I think it encapsulates this idea of prideful morality so well. I'll summarize the parable as this. There were two men going to the temple to worship. One was a Pharisee. The other was a Gentile, non-Jewish tax collector, scum of the earth. And as they were worshiping, Jesus tells the parable that the Pharisee looked at the tax collector and said, I thank God that I am not like him. Meanwhile, the tax collector, Jesus says, was in the temple beating his chest saying, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus asks, who do you think went to his home in right standing with God? Who do you think was the tax collector? The pride. What a prideful thing to say. But isn't that so true for so many of us? I thank God that I go to church more than my family member does. Oh, I thank God that I have the words of life and not this other person. Oh, I thank God that I have more faith than my unbelieving brother or sister in Christ. That's just morality it's pride. And we're told in Scripture that God opposes the pride, the prideful. A certain end of morality, it's exhaustion, it's pride. The last thing that morality will end in is this. It will end in judgment. This is a difficult truth, but it's a biblical truth. We're told that the Father, God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of the Bible, he has handed all judgment over to his son, Jesus Christ. And on, on the last day, all people will give an account before the righteous and good judge, Jesus Christ. And you will be judged according to your works, according to your deeds. The question is, will you be judged according to your works? 
or according to the perfect sinless works of Jesus Christ. Let me give you a scenario because Scripture calls the good works of man filthy rags and polluted garments. So as we're standing before Christ on the last day, and we look to Christ as our judge and say, look at my good works. Look at how moral I was. Is this sufficient for me to spend eternal life with my Father? You know what our Lord will say? Your good works are like filthy rags and polluted garments. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. But there's good news for the humble person. There's good news for the person that's reached the end of themselves. There's good news for the person that sober-mindedly, humbly reads what God requires of his people and says, I can't live up to that. The good news is that Jesus did. The good news is that Jesus lived a sinless life that you and I could not live under the law of God. The good news is that Jesus died the death that you and I deserve to die because of sin as the sinless substitute in our place. The good news is that Jesus rose again to validate all of this and give new life to all who would place their faith in him. And here's what happens. Pastors, theologians called this the great exchange. It's when we humbly, like the tax collector in Luke 18, say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. The Father gives Christ's perfect righteousness to you. And when that happens, we are indwelt with the spirit of Christ. <laughs> and, and we no longer work to make ourselves right with God, but we work from the truth that because of Christ, we are right with him. Living morally without Christ living in you brings death. Would you place your faith in Jesus today? Would you place your faith in Jesus, the sinless one? who works from the inside out. Would you pray with me? Father, this is your word, and your word is true. God, we acknowledge that morality is dangerous. Lord, as your people, we repent today. We repent of trying to be morally good while at the same time rejecting the only good, perfect, true one, Jesus Christ. Father, we don't want empty hearts. We don't want self-help. We need a Savior. And so, God, I pray in this moment that your Holy Spirit would fill the empty places in our hearts. 
God, thank you that you will do this, seal this truth in our hearts today. It's in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.